Tonight on The Readout. I was in the vicinity of a conversation where I overheard the president say something to the effect of, you know, I, I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing mags away. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here. Let the people in. Take the effing mags away. Remember that? Well, tomorrow at the much anticipated, likely final January 6th hearing, we are expecting to hear evidence that Trump knew that things could turn violent that day. Also tonight, with just four weeks to go until the midterm, Stacey Abrams is here on her very close race with Brian Kemp for Georgia governor and her thoughts on the Georgia Senate race that could once again determine which party is in control. We begin tonight with breaking news. New reporting from The Washington Post is shedding light on a lingering question surrounding the FBI's investigation into Donald Trump's hoarding of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. Who in Trump's orbit has been cooperating with the DOJ? People familiar with the investigation tell The Post that it was a Trump employee at his Florida golf resort who informed agents about moving boxes at Trump's specific direction. The Post writes, the people familiar with the investigation said agents have gathered witness accounts indicating that after Trump advisors received a subpoena in May for any classified documents that remained at Mar-a-Lago, Trump told people to move boxes to his residence at the property. That description of events was corroborated by the security camera footage, which showed people moving the boxes, said the people who spoke on the condition of anonymity to discuss an ongoing investigation. The Post added that this employee has been interviewed multiple times and first denied handling boxes that could contain the classified documents. But after federal investigators gathered more evidence, this employee changed their story. The employee is now considered a key part of the investigation. NBC News has not been able to independently confirm the Post reporting, but if true, it would, as the Post indicates, offer the most direct account to date of Trump's actions and instructions leading up to the FBI's August 8th search. Joining me now is Charles Coleman, civil rights attorney, former prosecutor and MSNBC legal analyst, and Olivia Troy, former Homeland Security and Counterterrorism advisor to Vice President Mike Pence. Thank you both for being here. Charles, I want to start with you. Um, that uh, Let me read another little piece of this reporting. This is the, more of the, the Post reporting. The FBI uncovered evidence that the response to the grand jury subpoena was incomplete, that Trump gave in, and that additional classified documents likely remained at Mar-a-Lago, and that the efforts likely had been taken to obstruct the investigation. It looks like some of the additional um, evidence that was uncovered were photos, like security camera photos, showing them moving the specific documents. So if this employee, whoever they are, at first said they didn't do it. And then additional information was uncovered, including security camera footage showing it happening. Could this employee be cooperating in lieu of potentially being in some legal trouble? Joy, I think that's a pretty accurate assertion in terms of what may be driving this particular employee to now say what it is that the security camera footage obviously shows. I think for those viewers who are watching, it's important to understand the most significant aspect of what we are learning is the timing of this, because this is after the subpoena has already been issued. So it is a clear obstruction to an investigation, which you have now been given information was taking place, and you have now tied a knot or tied a 
line directly to Donald Trump in terms of his instructions around moving these uh, these documents. So that timeline is critical in assessing the fact that this likely is the clearest line to an obstruction of justice charge that we've seen thus far. And, and just to say with you for just a moment, I mean, Trump's lawyers have gone all the way to the Supreme Court asking the Supreme Court, Clarence Thomas, that he can make the decision or send it to the full court to essentially force these documents back into the hands of the special master. They're sort of playing all these waiting games. But in the end, does any of that matter? If, if Trump himself is directing people to take classified material and government-owned material, period, and move it after he gets another request from Farrah to give it back, and he's the one directing it, and there's surveillance footage, and there's a witness. What games are we playing here going to the Supreme Court? It sounds like he committed the crimes that were at issue in the original uh, DOJ order. Well, I don't want to call this a game changer, but I will say is that it, this opens up a different line of conversation that really does nullify whatever is going on over there. I think what you're talking about with respect to the actual documents in the special master's review could intensify the overall picture. But just taking on this alone, like you said, looking at the timeline, looking at this connection and the evidence that has now been sort of uncovered with this Washington Post story, that in and of itself is enough to deal with obstruction of justice, even if the other other stuff does not pan out, even if for some reason, somehow the special master were to find no problem. The fact is there was an investigation going. You had a subpoena and you directed people to move documents as a means of subverting that subpoena and, and trying to interfere with that investigation. So that by itself is enough. Uh, and this is the, this is the piece that, that's just come out. I have a printout of here. I'm going to read a little bit more of it for those of you who don't have a can't get through the paywall and can't necessarily read it. Let me read another piece of this Washington Post story. Multiple witnesses have told the FBI that they tried to talk Trump into cooperating with the National Archives and Records Administration, that's NARA, and the Justice Department as those agencies for months sought the return of sensitive or historical government records. People with the, uh, the familiar with the situation said the former president was adamant in private conversations that he would resist those efforts, continue to say that he owned those documents, that they were his. Olivia Troy, you worked in this administration. You dealt with Donald Trump. Can you make any sort of sense out of why this person seemed to be so determined to keep classified information, including information about another country's nuclear material? No, but other than it was probably, honestly, uh, probably a a, a key, I guess, a get out of jail free card, although it's I think it's going to put him in jail. I mean, I don't know what kind of secrets he was trading. I don't know if this was leverage. I don't know if he was sharing these with foreign adversaries. I mean, there's absolutely no reason for him to to have these documents out there. They don't belong to him. And I don't know if he's doing show and tell during dinners down there. But I'm certainly glad that this Trump, the, this Trump employee is cooperating. And I'm, I look, I'm, I worry for that person. Because I can only imagine, honestly, the fear going through them on why they originally didn't cooperate. And now they're coming forward. They know that they've got to tell the truth. And I would just tell everybody involved in this whole mess there that they need to be telling the truth. Because when it comes down to it, they know exactly who Trump is. And he is not going to defend you or protect you. You will get thrown under the bus. Yeah. And, and I have to come back to you just for a moment, uh, Charles Coleman, because you have somebody named Christina Bob, who's one of Trump's attorneys, who signed an attestation that everything had been turned in without knowing that to be true. And she's handed these documents by other people, including Boris Epstein, and they didn't want to sign it. 
That should have been a clear sign, right? Shouldn't that have been a sign to her that if the people, the lawyers who are saying sign this paper aren't signing it themselves, is she in any trouble here or or could they be? Well, I think she may be in the most trouble because it's a question of whether you knew or should have known. And I think that it's reasonable to assume under the circumstances that if you are going to other attorneys and they are not willing to make the same attestation around the completion of this 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 surrender of these documents, that that should tell you something. And that you had a due, you had a responsibility to conduct due diligence as to whether these uh, items had actually been turned over or whether there were still some things that were lingering, which we now know that there were. And so she's now put her herself in a very precarious position for not adhering to the appropriate levels of due diligence that you are required to under the professional standards of what it is to be an attorney, to what it is to swear on something, what it is to you know make an attestation of this nature. So I don't necessarily think it is an ex- exposure issue for the other lawyers, but certainly for her, she's now in her, in, in her own bit of hot water. Yeah, indeed. Uh, Charles Coleman, thank you very much, man. I appreciate you. Uh, Olivia Troy is sticking with me. And up next on The Readout, tomorrow is expected to be the final hearing of the January 6th Select Committee. And we are expecting to learn more about Trump's state of mind and what he knew about the likelihood of violence on that day. The Readout continues after this. We are less than 24 hours away from what could be a closing argument from the House January 6th Select Committee, even as we're learning more from the officers who lived through the unimaginable that day. NBC News has obtained audio of a private meeting last summer between Republican leader Kevin McCarthy, two officers who lived through the siege, Michael Fanone and Harry Dunn, and Gladys Sicknick, the mother of Officer Brian Sicknick, who died the day after January 6th. He's watching television. He's watching it with his family. I mean, what the hell kind of man is this? Um, I'm sorry. When I, when I called him, he wasn't watching TV. He wasn't with his family. He knew what was going on. He knew they were fighting for hours and hours and hours. I'm just telling you from my phone call, I don't know that he did know that at that point. Well, that's strange. Because during that phone call, Trump reportedly told McCarthy, quote, I guess these people are more upset about the election than you are. According to an excerpt from a new book, McCarthy reportedly yelled back, more upset? They're trying to effing kill me. When the January 6th committee reconvenes for what is expected to be the final hearing tomorrow, we will hear much more about the former president's awareness and indifference to the violence. According to The Washington Post, the hearing will focus on newly obtained Secret Service records showing that Trump was briefed about the growing threat of violence on that day and decided to stoke the flames anyway. According to the Post, the committee plans to share new video footage and internal Secret Service emails that appear to corroborate parts of the most startling inside accounts of that day. That includes damning testimony from White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson that the former president didn't care that many of his supporters had weapons and that he became irate after Secret Service agents told him he couldn't go to the Capitol that day. Meanwhile, NBC News has exclusively learned that the Secret Service has turned over more than one million pieces of electronic communication sent before or on January 6th. The hearing will also shed light on the alleged ties between those in Trump's orbit and the extremist groups in the mob that day. Today, we learn more about their intentions in the ongoing trial of five members of the Oath Keepers, including former leader Elmer Stewart Rhodes on charges of seditious conspiracy. Today, one member who traveled with the group testified to seeing a massive stockpile of firearms stashed in a Virginia hotel room the night before the insurrection. Terry Cummings testified, 
I had not seen that many weapons in one location since I was in the military. But tomorrow, the committee will remind the public that Donald Trump was the central driving force behind it all, a point reinforced by one of the officers nearly killed that day, former Metropolitan Police Officer Michael Fanon. Donald Trump sat for 187 minutes and didn't do while hundreds of police officers were fighting for their lives on the Capitol steps. And we now know that he was watching uh, intently uh, throughout that entire period. The select committee, I think, has done you know, an outstanding job investigating the root causes of January 6th. To me, it was very clear at the end uh, that you know, Donald Trump engaged in uh, defrauding the American people, uh, lying to them about you know, the election, uh, 2020 election, and at having not been a free and fair election. Uh, and I think he needs to be held accountable. Joining me now is Denver Riggleman, former Republican congressman from Virginia, former advisor to the January 6th Select Committee, and author of The Breach, the untold story of the investigation into January 6th. And back with me is Olivia Troy, former Homeland Security and counterterrorism advisor to Vice President Mike Pence. And Denver Riggleman, I do want to start with you. What do you expect? What do you think, just based on having advised the committee before, what do you think we're going to hear that's new uh, in these hearings tomorrow? Well, you know, thanks for having me, Joy. <clears throat> when you give a uh, military briefing or intelligence briefing, you tell them what you're going to tell them. Then you tell them. Then you tell them what you told them. Right. So we're going to get the tell them what you told them with some new data that's going to come across the transmit. I think I think a lot of that's going to be the Secret Service text. I think it's going to be looking at those millions of lines of communication, which they had the technical prowess to look at that. I'm proud to say. Um, mm-hmm. But I think they're also going to everything that uh, you were talking about, like Cassidy Hutchinson. And what I think was the most important part of her testimony was President Trump saying he wanted to remove the mags. I mean, I think people need to remember all that. And I think what they're going to do is they're going to take it from the officers who first testified in July. They're going to move it all the way through and they're going to talk about their links or their evidence that President Trump was aware was going on, but also the those individuals underneath of him right, that we're very aware and we're helping in the planning and the fundraising and the grift and the conspiracy theories and all that happened on January 6th for Stop the Steal. Lastly, and, you know, we can go into a lot of this because Olivia knows this, I think they are going to talk about Vice President Pence that day. Yeah. I think they're going to talk about the fact that he was in danger and they're going to talk about the alternate electors. I think that's going to be a very important part of that uh, final hearing. Yeah, and Olivia, I do want to ask you about Mike Pence. Because, I, mean, you're, you're t- I mean, and I wonder just how, how you read this when you— If Donald Trump knew that there could be violence that day, if you had Proud Boys and Oath Keepers and Three Percenters and piles of guns that looked like a military attack and they were right near the Capitol and that there was plans for violence and that Donald Trump then says, remove the mags, they're not here to hurt me. And that he knew essentially that these people were here to lynch your former boss. They were here to lynch the vice president of the United States to punish him for not throwing the election. I don't know how any other way to put it. And I wonder how that how you read that when you go back and think about all the things that happened to Pence that day. Yeah, it's absolutely abhorrent. I, I, I can't tell you, like, I'll never get over the fact that the sitting president of the United States knew that his own vice president's life was in danger and didn't care. He didn't care about any of these people. He didn't care about those law enforcement officers out there. And he also, once it was in progress, was told repeatedly about it. And he did nothing. He did nothing to stop it. And the reason this matters is because Donald Trump is still out there. He's still out there emboldening the stolen election lines. There's a bunch of election deniers still running today. All of this runs deep, Joy. It, the extent of it 
is, is, is so expansive across the board here that this isn't going away anytime soon. And I think people need to remember if, if he or someone like him comes back into office, remember these moments. Remember the fact that he almost had his own vice president killed, because that is what we are looking at going forward. Are you disappointed, Olivia, that former Vice President Pence has not testified to this committee? You know, I think I've, I'm grateful that his staff has and they've given the information. I, I wish that Mike Pence would say more and would be more forward leaning on this uh, because I think that his voice still matters, especially in Republican circles. And I think it could make a difference. And I think we are in a moment where anyone who can make a difference, especially when it comes to people in Republican leadership, should be doing that right now. And Denver Riggleman, you know, I have to ask you, as a former member of Congress yourself, you know, the idea that members of Congress were hiding terrified from a mob that really would have killed them. We just showed some of that footage of them trying to breach the door to the Speaker's Lounge. I mean, anyone who was caught was going to be killed, right? You know, here you see these Capitol Police officers having to train their firearms at the door in case anyone came through that door. And for you, knowing that the wife of a Supreme Court justice, Jenny, Jenny Thomas, who still apparently told the committee that she believes the election was stolen, she's still pushing the big lie, that Roger Stone, who has worked to elect Republicans all up and down that ballot, senators, congresspeople, he's been involved in politics since the Nixon era, that people who are well known to you, I'm sure, and to people who you worked with when you were a congressman, all either conspired or were willing to allow people to die, allow members to die. For what? Because they lost an election. What is that? I mean, I, I'm wondering just how you react to that just as a human being. Well, it's tough because, you know, I, I know a lot of those individuals, you're looking at, you know, Jason Crow popping up and some of those people that I know very well. And I guess that's why it's so stunning. You know, when I first saw the Meadows text messages, 2319, you had dozens of current and former members that were pushing this nonsense. You also had cabinet officials. You had uh, Republican officials from multiple states. You had people like Jenny Thomas. You had activists. You even had the individuals that were conducting those bizarre cyber investigations, right, and doing the briefings about foreign interference in the election, all going through the text messages. And still, you had 139 of those in the House of Representatives vote to object to the electors. So as a former member of Congress who took a note to defend the Constitution, I find it stunning and abhorrent that we're still going down this stop to steal rabbit hole. And what Olivia said was right. It's actually getting worse. It's in the data. This is now yeah. a fail that's believed, right? This is a fantasy. You know, I said before that a lot of these individuals, you know, thought Lord of the Rings was a documentary. Well, that's a real issue. If you have those people actually in the House or in the Senate or in the executive um, making policy. I mean, we don't want the lunatics running the asylum. And I think, again, that's the shocking thing. Not just the criminal stuff, Joy, right? It's not, it's not yeah. just the criminal stuff. Do you really want that kind of crazy permeating every level of the GOP? And I think that's why it was so important to have these hearings. Absolutely. Let me play one more clip from Michael Fanon, uh, his, the interview that he did last night with Alex uh, Wagner. What did shock me was the level of indifference that I experienced uh, from people like uh, Kevin McCarthy, and uh, many of the other Republican leaders, and not only to me, um, who was there, you know, trying to represent the other officers that responded to the Capitol that day to fought to defend democracy and, and the lives of the individuals that were in the building, but also the indifference that he showed towards um, Brian Sicknick's mother, Gladys Sicknick. Uh, you know, this is the mother of a fallen police officer, a dead police officer, uh, and many of these um, People, you know, took an adversarial position um, with this woman who was, you know, looking for answers. 
Ben Riggleman, can you imagine what it would mean for Kevin McCarthy to be the Speaker of the House? We know that he would much likely dismantle the January 6th committee and probably launch a rival investigation to try to attack people, um, people like the person you just saw in there, people who defended the Capitol that day, maybe Democratic leaders and others who were on this committee. Yeah, I've wondered that there was going to be a committee to investigate the committee, right, Joy? Which, yeah. you know, I'm happy to protect. And on the other side, right? Um, we know what the data says. I think also when you look at Mike Fanone, who I who I've met obviously and talked to, and Gladys Sicknick and Sandra Garza and Harry Dunn and all the individuals who are part of this, it makes you sick to your stomach that there's any indifference towards what Capitol Police go through. I mean, my God, I was in the military. You know, I got a love for military and law enforcement personnel that goes well beyond just knowing these individuals. You know, they took an oath in what they're protecting. But here's what gets me joy and uh, what I've been thinking about a lot is that there were so many people in the White House that were involved with this. We know that there were phone calls in and out with rally planners. We know there were texts going from Andrew Giuliani to Kelly Sorrell and Kelly Sorrell to Andrew Giuliani. We know that there's people, you know, like Bianca Gracia, who were in contact with the White House, who had contacts with Roger Stone, but also with Enrique Tarrio and uh, Stuart Rhodes. So there's so many people in the White House that were aware of what was going on. We know because of records and data, but we also know the human element of this. And the human element is, is we had a a president, if you look at the call logs, it wasn't just 187 minutes. It was seven hours and 37 minutes. That's that's really the issue, right, is how long that individual did not do a damn thing, right, to help those individuals on the ground who were being attacked by a mob who believed in something so insane as that Italian satellites were changing votes or Venezuelan dictators were changing votes or Chinese servers were rerouting votes. It's just it's it's abhorrent. Um, and I think uh, at some point, um, we just got to tell the truth that we don't want crazy um, making policy in this country anymore. And sadly, it, it is now the basis for the majority of the people who are running on the Repo on Republican tickets all over this country. Uh, it's frightening uh, to think about it. But we do appreciate both of you for being here to talk about it tonight. Former Congressman Denver Riggleman and Olivia Troy, thank you both very much. Up next, we're going to talk about Georgia politics uh, and the critical importance of this. Speaking of midterm elections, this midterm election with Stacey Abrams, the Democratic nominee for governor. The readout continues after this. So I've been telling this little story about this bull out in the field with six cows and three of them are pregnant. So you know he got something going on. But all he cared about is kept his nose against the fence looking at three other cows that then belong to him. So one day he measured that fence up and he said, I think I can jump this. So that day came where he got back and he got back. And as he took off running, he dove over that fence and his belly got cut up onto the bottom. But as he made it over on the other side, he shook it off and got so excited about it. And he ran to the top of that hill. But when he got up there, he realized they were bulls too. Jesus, you still here? That right there was Mr. Herschel Walker, whose campaign is a smoking hot mess, sharing a story about a bull who knocks up three cows. Why? It's not clear. But it sure looks like Florida Senator Rick Scott, who's in charge of Republican Senate re-election or election strategy, was sure wondering the same thing. Brian Kemp, who's running for governor and sharing the Republican ticket with Walker, is praying that Herschel keeps his bull story and his other stories, for that matter, a safe distance away so that he doesn't get hit 
by the collateral damage. But just because Walker is a bull in a china shop, you see what I did there? It doesn't mean that Kemp isn't equally dangerous. During his time as the governor of Georgia, Kemp has implemented extremist policies and laws like signing legislation that restricts access to voting and a ban on abortion after six weeks. Yet he has gotten what could be called a Herschel Pass. A recent analysis has found that SB 202, the voting law, has effectively cut access to voting. This year, 4% of voters cast absentee ballots, compared to 26% in the 2020 general election and 49% in that year's primary, when absentee ballot applications were sent to all active voters. And join me now, Stacey Abrams, the Democratic nominee for governor of Georgia. And, and uh, thank you for, for being here, Stacey. I want to start on the voting law. Because I feel like Herschel has kind of obliterated the sun on Georgia politics, and people are now kind of not paying attention to Kemp. That law, there are now 7.8 million registered voters in your state, state of Georgia. Federal data shows that 95% of the state's eligible voters are signed up. This is actually a huge success, to which you get a lot of credit. You've been doing this for quite a long time, and you were, your organization was one of the main groups that was doing a lot of this registration. 68% of eligible voters in Georgia turned out in the 2020 election. In a country where we can barely get 60%, that's a miracle. I wonder if you believe that this law is going to undo that miracle and reduce the, the turnout of Georgia voters this year. We know that this law is having a deleterious effect on voter turnout. But let's understand that while the focus of election denial has been myopically focused on denying the outcome, which is the Trump and Kerry Lake methodology, we also have to recognize that election denial is denying access. And that is Brian Kemp's specialty. You don't have to manipulate the outcome if you can break down and stop people from even showing up. And that access piece is what so many Republicans are getting away with because we've been so drawn to the denialism of outcome. And because of that, laws like SB 202 are having a very pernicious effect on voting rights, but they're getting less attention because it's not as exciting and it's not the catnip that is what we've been talking about for the last year. But here's what we know is happening. Because of that law, 64,000 voters have had their eligibility challenged, including by white supremacist groups. We know that those challenges, especially in Cobb County, were disproportionately targeted at voters of color. We know that senior citizens and disabled people are having a harder time filling out these more complicated applications for absentee ballots because Brian Kemp said, and I quote, he was frustrated by the results in 2020, and so he changed the law. He has made it more difficult for voters to participate, to access the right to vote. But because it's not as grotesque as it may have been in years past, he is getting a pass. And unfortunately for voters, we have to do the makeup work to get them to the polls. And that's why we're encouraging voters to vote early, starting October 17th, so we can get them in, get them through and get them home with their votes cast and counted. Now, you know, this is this is what kind of confuses me about the narrative that just in my sort of circles of people who are very politically active and are paying a lot of attention to Georgia, there is this narrative 
uh, about Brian Kemp, that because he didn't go along with Donald Trump's scheme to steal the election, that he comes across that he's, oh, he's more moderate. He's not like as out there as some of these other candidates that are running for office. And there is this narrative that he will get a pass from black male voters that you somehow will not get. I, I want to play something that's been going around a lot. I'm sure you've seen it, too. This is Killer Mike. He was on Charlemagne's uh, Charlemagne the God show. And this is what he had to say about Brian Kemp. The guy she's running against is running an effective campaign. Brian Kemp. And, and Brian Kemp okay. is running an effective campaign. I would advise if I was in Ms. Kemp's camp, you need to go everywhere he just went. Ms. Abrams. And Ms. Abrams. Yeah. You need to go everywhere Brian Kemp just went because what Brian Kemp did was have an effective week with black people. I, I am confused as how somebody who is actively working to suppress the votes of black people, which does include black men, could ever have an effective week with black people. Is there a black male Brian Kemp sort of fan base? And if so, maybe is it divorced from the voter suppression piece? I'm confused. Well, 10 percent of black voters are conservative. And let's be clear that the two events that are being referenced here, one was a curated event led by a self-professed conservative, and the other was an event I was at before he was. But let's put that aside. Let's also talk about the fact that today I was with black and brown business owners, small business owners that invited us to come and talk about our plans for the state of Georgia. I showed up where they are. He went to Brooks County, where 10 years ago, he arrested 10 women on Christmas Eve and charged them with 120 felonies because they had the temerity to wait for it, use absentee ballots to get representation on the school board for a majority black school district with, for the first time, getting more African-Americans on the school board. He held a fundraiser and a restaurant that is known for its past as a segregated restaurant where many black diners still won't attend instead of sitting down with black and brown business owners to talk about how he is going to help close a 100-year economic gap in the state of Georgia. Brian Kemp has been very clear about who he is. And showing up twice in October before an election will not negate his eight years of voter suppression, his four years of disregard for black and brown communities, and his long and pernicious history of denying access to the right to vote. And so while with all due respect to those who would say that two, two moments of showing up counts, I will say that for the last four years, I have shown up in community when I didn't have the job. I paid off the medical debts of 68,000 Georgians when Brian Kemp refused to even expand Medicaid during COVID. I put 150 Wi-Fi devices in communities when he refused to solve the challenge of the lack of access to broadband. I got, I made certain that families got access to vaccines when he said that black and brown communities weren't motivated to take care of it themselves. And so I would argue that anyone looking at the totality of Mr. Kemp's history, they know who he is. And they know what he's done. And despite the attempt to recast his story, his story is very well written. And we're going to write a new story on November 8th. Let me let me ask you very quickly before we run out of time. There is also a narrative that there's like a ticket splitter voter in, in Georgia that is that, that finds Kemp acceptable, but does not find uh, Herschel Walker acceptable. Let me just put up what people say is the most important thing to them. Republicans is just inflation. They're just inflation voters. Independents are somewhere in the middle. They care about inflation, but they also care about the election laws that were passed, abortion, gun violence, and health care. Democrats are also mixed uh, on the things they care about. They really care about abortion. Which issue do you think is the driving issue for 
the majority of Georgia voters as they go into the polls and for the voters that you're targeting? Georgians don't have the luxury of picking one issue. They have to look at the totality of what's before them. And they know that health care costs are too high because Brian Kemp won't expand Medicaid. They know they don't have the freedom to control their own bodies, although he believes that that freedom belongs only to Herschel Walker, that he alone is allowed to make choices about his personal life. And therefore, abortion is top of mind because it's also an economic issue. They are concerned about the skyrocketing price of housing when a governor is willing to make thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars on real estate, but deny access to $400 million that's available to stop evictions and he won't spend it. And so I think what we should look at is the fact that 60 percent of the absentee ballot applications returned so far are from women in Georgia, and that 37% are from people, are from African-American voters in Georgia. And that is, I think, an extraordinary number that signals that what people are paying attention to is what the future looks like, and we believe the future looks blue. Uh, Stacey Abrams, thank you very much. We appreciate you joining us uh, this evening. Uh, and up next, thanks, and up next, uh, as this New York Times columnist puts it, there is a sleeping giant that may be the deciding factor in the midterm elections. We'll be right back. All right, joining me now for more on my conversation with Stacey Abrams, as well as all things midterms, Tom Bonnier, political analyst and CEO of Target Smart, and Maria Teresa Kumar, president and CEO of Volta Latino and MSNBC political analyst. Thank you, friends, for being here. So let's just get into this real quick. Let's talk Georgia for just a second. I went through these polls, uh, Tom, and, you know, I feel like the polls don't necessarily tell you, I don't think they tell you what's going to happen as, as, as an old campaign person, but they do tell you kind of what people are kind of paying attention to. And I did ask Stacey Abrams whether it's an inflation election or an abortion election. But you kind of have a thought on that, that you think abortion, you uh, has to agree with me, that abortion is such a huge issue. So, you know, the polls are asking people what they think most important issue. I think that's interesting. We're looking at the actions people are taking in right. the end. And that's the most compelling thing. Mm -hmm. For a while, it was registering to vote. Mm -hmm. And we were seeing this huge gender gap among voters registering in Georgia, really around the country. Mm -hmm. Now it's voting. Over a million votes have already been cast Good in this point. election. Mm -hmm. People are voting in Georgia. As Stacey Abrams said, we look at those ballot requests, huge gender gap. 60% of the people requesting ballots are women. Mm -hmm. It's a bigger gender gap than they've had in previous elections, including in 2020 when Democrats obviously did well statewide. So those actions are suggesting that, mm -hmm. yes, this issue is still very much motivated. And is that true across the country or is it true in some states more than others, red states more than blue or blue more than red? You're seeing slightly varying impacts, frankly, where the issue is more present, including in some very red states. We've all talked about Kansas and that constitutional amendment where you had 40-point gender gap in voter registration. Women turned out at record-breaking rates. But it's also happening in places like Idaho. In these key races, it's happening in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Ohio, mm -hmm. and out west, yeah. places like Nevada and, it and Arizona. And hasn't diminished from the summer because that's what's been some of the— No, the funny thing is it had a huge surge immediately after Dobbs. Right. It came back a little bit, but still well above where it was before, still a big gender gap. Mm -hmm. And then after Lindsey Graham said what he said and filed this bill nationally for a national ban— the numbers started going up again. Back going up again. And, and so, Marisha Kumar, the, there is this sort of sectioning off of the Latino vote as the vote. That, and people say this a lot, but this year they're saying, this is the vote that's going to go for the Republicans this year. And sort of carving abortion out of that conversation and saying that Latino voters are just economic voters, they're inflation voters, they're going for Republicans. Are you seeing that on the ground? No. I mean, we were able to see our rise and an uptick in voter registration in Texas and Arizona after the leak of the Dobbs decision. It wasn't even the Dobbs decision. And this is where we have an opportunity to make sure that we're talking to the Latino community about things that they care about. We have an ad that shows a 14% lift 
for voting for Democrats among independent voters in Arizona and Nevada. And it's the and it's the leading ad among men. And the ad is abortion. Mm. It's an issue that is something that is private. When people say that you're going to see a surge of a Latino vote, it's which Latinos are going to vote. Right. We oftentimes we hear this idea that the Latino vote is not a monolith. That's absolutely true. Yeah. But Joy, it's among generations. Mm. I will share with you, in 2020 we had a 34% of all first time all voters were first time voters in the Latino community. Yeah. To give you an idea what happened in Nevada, because that's who we're talking about. In Nevada in 2014, we saw a decline of participation by Latinos from 61% in 2012 to 11% in 2014 wow. by young Latino voters. Yeah. And then it, we saw an uptick when Rosen was on the ballot and there was an investment in young Latinos. We saw that uptick go to 39%. So, so let so, me ask you then in Nevada, because you, yeah, you did yeah. mention Nevada. And yeah. this is going to, and I'm going to throw a bow to you, but I, I want to start with you for, to uh, MTK on this. There is this narrative that Cortez Masto, so she is a woman. Mm-hmm. She is Latina, right? Mm-hmm. She's a, she's a, one of the only, one of the very few, she's right? The only in national woman. politics and the, the only, only woman. Latina. So she's a woman. So it, it, it feels like, the, and this is a state with a very solid Democratic Party. Yeah. Harry Reid built a machine. It's they a did. great Democratic Party. And they so miss him right now. Why is the narrative that Laxalt is on his way to taking that seat? Because I can share with you from an organization that is the largest voter registration organization in the Latino community, where we registered 650,000 people, 58% of them were first-time voters, there is a lack of interest of investment in young Latinos. Because what they're doing is reading the headlines. And you know who's investing on the conservative side on the Latino voters? The Republicans are. Yeah. So if we know, as of three weeks ago, 51% of Latino voters have not received any contact yeah. from a political party. I also know that that's disproportionately young because they don't have a history of voting. And you used to work in campaigns. The, what people usually do is they go out and they tar- target individuals that have a record of voting at least five times. Right. Well, the people that we talk to are 18 to 29 years old. At best, they have a rec- voting record of two, of two times. And so no one talks to them. And then they are doing a self-fulfilling prophecy. Just get this. Just in Arizona alone, we're expecting 80,000 new young voters since two years ago. Yeah. Biden won that state by 12,000 votes. There's this lack of consistent investment and in constantly talking to the community in a way that is authentic. And do you do you think they care about abortion? They You better believe it. Yeah. Because when they talk about inflation, they also know that, that abortion is an economic issue. 68% of Latinos in key battleground states in Georgia, Arizona, and in Nevada, on polls that we've done, they believe in abortion care, regardless of gender. Yeah. When you look at just women, that skyrockets to close to 80%. And speaking of it, let's talk a little bit about Ohio and Pennsylvania. So in Ohio, you have you talk about lack of investment. The Democratic Party is always afraid to spend in Ohio, right? Because it's seen as a red state, but it has a Democratic senator. Yeah. And I always say any state that's got a statewide elected Democrat, you know, North Carolina, Sherry Beasley used to be the Supreme Court, the right. leader of the Supreme Court. <laughs> You've got, you know, Louisiana's got a Democratic governor. So I've never understood this calculus, but there is this sense of the Democrats maybe being reluctant in Ohio and in Pennsylvania, you then have people sort of trying to, you know, question the, the sort of healthiness of the Democratic candidate. But he's ahead, mm-hmm. and, and, and they're still nervous. I, I don't understand it. Pennsylvania, Ohio, how do you look at those at those states? You know, as you said, the polls in both those states actually look close. I mean, Democrats, Fetterman are, is up. Yeah. That race has been getting a little bit closer. Sure. I think Republicans are seeing that polls, trying that those polls trying to change the narrative. Mm-hmm. Both of those seats are winnable. Or Democrats. When you look at the numbers I was talking about, the engagement, you're right. seeing this spike. Actually, those are two of the states that had biggest gender gaps after Dobbs. There's the potential for younger voters, especially in those states, to participate. Prior to Dobbs, 
Younger yeah. voters were not engaged, engaged in this election. They weren't engaged at all. They were given President Biden low approval ratings. Yeah. They weren't very connected. Totally changed after that. You know how you get younger voters uh, engaged? Threaten them with ownership by the state. And young women understand that. My kids are, you know, yeah, understand it. it. People understand it. Anyway, Tom Bonnier, Maria Teresa Kumar, we're going to have you guys back. Thank you very much. And up next on the readout, a stunning and just verdict against Alex Jones, who is finally facing the consequences for the years of vitriol and hate and lies unleashed on the families of Sandy Hook victims. We'll be right back. Alex Jones, the right-wing conspiracy theorist and founder of InfoWars, has been ordered by a Connecticut jury to pay nearly $1 billion in damages to the families of eight victims of the 2012 Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting. For years, Jones pushed lies at the horrific massacre that took the lives of 20 first graders and six educators was a hoax and accused the victims' families of being actors complicit in the plot. This is the second jury to order Jones to pay damages. In August, a Texas jury awarded nearly $50 million to the parents of another child killed in the shooting. Before deliberating, this jury heard from families about the kind of threats and harassment they faced as a result of those lies from Jones. It is one thing to lose a child. It's quite another thing when people take everything about your boy who is gone and your surviving child, and your husband, and everything you ever did in your life that is on the internet, and harass you. She's home by herself. She's really, really stressed. She'll say, I I feel better when I'm at a friend's house because nobody knows who I am, but when I'm home, I feel like I'm a target. It's just so hard to go see your seven-year-old child's headstone and to hear that people were desecrating it and urinating on it and threatening to dig it up. I, I, don't, I don't know how to articulate to you what that feels like. Wow. After the verdict was read, Jones reacted live on his InfoWars show. InfoWars show. 20 million, 50 million, 80 million, 100 million, blah, blah. You get a million, you get 100 million, you get a 50 million. Ain't gonna be happening, ain't no money. I killed the kids, folks. What a horse's ass. Jones' lawyer says that he'll appeal the jury's decision. That's tonight's readout. 